You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Unfortunately, life uh, does not work like AT&T. In other words, you cannot roll over your minutes in life. Uh, I currently have uh, 3,780 rollover minutes. Uh, So that means if I want to, I can talk on the phone for like 63 hours, uh, almost three days, which just sounds like death to me. I don't want to talk on the phone for three minutes. Uh, But I can do it if I want to, and I wish I could trade in those 63 hours for something else. You know, 63 hours of snow skiing, 63 hours of dates with my wife and daughter, 63 hours of reading books uh, and sipping good coffee. But I can't do it. That's not how life works. You have the minutes that you're given, and then they're gone. Can't roll them over, can you? We have taken the past four weeks as a church to look at some of the things that that people typically make New Year's resolutions about. Uh, Our work, our money, our body, our habits. And we've asked this question, how do our resolutions and our goals about these things fit into the larger context of our discipleship to Jesus? Because you can never, you can never divorce your goals uh, from, the, from a larger, uh, more grand understanding of God's design for us, his purpose for us. Because if you divorce those things, then you'll lose sight of God and you'll begin to, to serve your goals as if they are your gods. And so today we're looking at one last thing. Uh, we're looking at this issue of time. The way we spend our time, possibly, is maybe one of the more frustrating things in many uh, of, of our lives, um, which is why we make resolutions about time, I think. Uh, a lot of us look at our lives and we say, all right, this year, I'm going to use my time better. Right? I'm not going to procrastinate so much. You know, this year, I'm not going to be so busy. I'm going to get a hold of my schedule. This year, I'm going to use my time for more... Uh, for more important things and not for just all the urgent things in my life. And most of us, I think, if we're honest, wish we were doing a little bit better with our time. All of us, I think, are, are, are looking for this elusive thing that we would call balance, right? You know, balance is somewhere between overwork and laziness. Balance is somewhere between being way too busy uh, and just being a time waster, and if, if I could just get that slippery thing called balance, I would spend just the right amount of time at work or at school. I would spend just the right amount of time with my family and friends, just the right amount of time serving, just the right amount of time with God, and so on and so on. If I could just get balance in my life. And the reason I think balance is so elusive is that time is so elusive. Right? We said it. You can't roll it over. You can't store it up. You can't keep it. It's not like money. You can't hold on to it. You can't earn more of it. What you have is what you got. That's it. Time is slipping away. I don't know if you, it's kind of freaky when you think about it. Have you ever thought about the fact that time, that seconds are passing by, like right now, that you can never get back? Like gone, 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 gone. One second older, one second older, one second older, one second older, right? And you're thinking, and I'm spending these seconds listening to this guy? (laughs) Yes, you are. For 3,780 minutes. No. Um, I think the whole idea of balance is probably more an American thing uh, than a biblical thing. 
See, one of the problems with balance is when we, get, when we seek balance, we tend to sort of divide up into our lives into parts. You know, my work, my family, my church, my leisure. Uh, but when you read the Bible, the Bible almost never uh, allow, allows us to do that. The Bible tends to hold things together more holistically, life more holistically. It tends to hold things together in tension, not allow them to be split up or dichotomized, balanced in any way. But I think another problem with this idea of balance or time management that we run into is that when we try to seek balance or manage our time, we start treating time like it's a commodity. Like we reduce time to, to what we can get out of it or what we can get done with it. So we start think, talking in terms of time is money, time is productivity, or this is my time, don't waste my time. And we treat time like we own it. But the Bible, first and foremost, teaches about time is that God owns time. And we just get to experience time as a gift. God is the owner of time. And the problem uh, with seeking time management sometimes is when we think we own our time, our time just starts owning us. When we think, oh, I'm just going to be the master of my time, more often than not, we get mastered by time, don't we? And so I want to do just a couple of things in the next few minutes together. I want to just look at the fact, scripturally, that God owns time. It belongs to him. Gives it to us as a gift. And then I want to look at what we'll call the God-appointed means or God-ordained means to work that truth into our life. If we don't work that into our life, every fabric of, of our being, it doesn't matter what kind of resolutions we make about time, right? Because then we, we, we get off course. All right, so let's do that. I want to say that I, I owe much of the way that I'm thinking about things uh, in this sermon to a guy named Eugene Peterson. Some of you have read uh, his books Uh, What Eugene Peterson writes about a biblical view of time in several of his books, I think is hard to improve upon. All right, so he is great. I'm thankful for him, and he has greatly influenced me. All right, so turn to Genesis 1, if you have a Bible. First page of your Bible. If you don't have one, um, maybe you have an app on your phone. Or there's there's red Bibles in the pews in front of you. You want to grab that. I just want you to see this for a second. Genesis one, the first page of your Bible. Let's talk about how God owns time. He's the owner and author of time because he's the creator. Right? So it would make sense that the creation of account, the creation account in Genesis 1 would tell us something about how time works. And Genesis 1 is going to give us a rhythm of time, a one-week rhythm that's very informative. It's the creation rhythm uh, of time. Let me just read a few verses, starting in verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So as you read on, there's this repeated refrain. And there was evening and there was morning. Third day, then God creates some stuff, stuff, stuff. There was evening, there was morning. The fourth day, stuff, stuff, stuff. There was evening, there was morning. The fifth day, so on and so on. It's this rhythmic poetry that sort of carries us along to the very end of the chapter. And you know what the last line of the chapter is? And there was evening, 
There was mourning the sixth day. Now, this refrain uh, adds a a rhythm and a beauty to the, the telling of God's creation of all things. But it's not just there for the poetry. It's actually there because it describes a Hebrew understanding of what a day is. Evening, morning, first day. This is not how we as Americans view a day. This is the typical American view uh, of a day. Day begins. My alarm clock on my cell phone goes off before the sun comes up. And it's somewhere down here on the floor. And I reach down and I cannot find it because my arm is asleep, right? And I'm trying to turn the thing off and I'm frustrated. Finally get it off. I get up, stumble to the shower, shower, eat, and start my day. Now, everything I have to do that day, my work, my tasks, my exercise, uh, my recreation, my relationships, everything I, I do, I fit in between the time that alarm clock goes off and the time I go to bed later that night. That, that's, that's the time I have to manage. Uh, that's what, I, I fit everything in there to, to find balance in some way, and that's a day. We've been able to expand the day a little bit longer by several hours ever since we figured out how to harness electricity, and so now we can add several hours to the day after it gets dark to get more stuff done. But essentially, when I'm doing, done doing my stuff, all the things I need to do, all the things I want to do, that's the day. And then I go to bed. And I'm, at that point, I'm functionally dead for like eight hours, right? I'm unproductive. I'm adding nothing uh, to, the, to the functioning of my household. I'm adding nothing to our economy, uh, adding nothing to the, the, the turning of the world. Because it's nighttime. It's not a day. Now, the Hebrew understanding of the day is much different. For the Hebrew, the day doesn't run from alarm clock till lights off. Uh, for the Hebrew, evening is the beginning of the day. So a, a day runs from sunset until sunset the next day. So the first part of a day is actually the night. When everybody's asleep. When everybody is unproductive. When everybody is functionally dead to the world. That's the beginning of the day. Now, why is that so important for us to know? Because the Hebrew understanding of the day that we see here in Genesis 1 actually captures God's rhythm of time. God is at work when we aren't. God is active when we are completely passive. He's doing lots of important stuff, like holding the universe together while I'm asleep. And so I get out of bed, I go downstairs and put a pot of coffee on, and I'm like, all right, now the day can start. As if the day originates with me. But the reality is the day's already half over. I'm just stepping into something that's already going, that God is already doing. And so I may think that I am the originator of my tasks, that I am the manager of all my time, that the success of my day depends on my productivity. But I just have the privilege of entering into something that's already happened. This, uh, I think, evening-morning rhythm is really important for us because it conditions us to the rhythms of grace. While we're asleep, God is working. We wake up, and and, and in faith, we respond to his previous work, and we go about our day. We enter into work. But it's grace first, then works. Grace, then works. That's the pattern of creation. It's also the pattern of salvation. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. 
while we were dead in sin, like asleep in sin, God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him. So it's like we were asleep and then God woke us up. Grace before works. That's the pattern of creation. That's the pattern of salvation. That's the pattern of time. Uh, God is the prime mover. He is the owner of time. And so our use of time uh, is simply a, a faith response to what he's already doing in time because he's the prime mover. We get to participate in his work in the world, right? We get to steward or manage what he owns that he gifts to us, and that's time. He owns it. Now, we are hard-headed, and so we either don't believe this uh, or we forget this, more likely, and uh, we start living as if time belongs to us. And so God, in his goodness, has given us a means, a, a practice, a tool in which to work that truth into our lives, all right? And the means or the tool that he has given us flows out of this creation rhythm of time. And we see it in Exodus chapter 20. So turn over to the right a little bit. Exodus chapter 20, the second book of the Bible. God's primary means of helping us learn to steward time, which he owns, is the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You ever wonder why Sabbath is a command? Why do we have to be commanded to rest? Why do we have to be commanded to stop? What's going on in our lives and our hearts? What kind of restlessness? What kind of striving is going on in our lives? That we have to be commanded, hey, stop. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. So he appeals to the creation rhythm here. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the fourth commandment. So the command to Sabbath is top four out of the top ten. Right? It gets in there ahead of don't murder anybody. It gets in there ahead of don't commit adultery, which are biggies. Right? Sabbath, though, it's top four. The reason is because the top four commands all have to do with our relationship with God. And if we don't get our relationship with God right, then everything else is out of whack in our life. So the top four are a big deal. And what's the first one? Don't have any other gods before me. So no one else or nothing else worship as God. I'm God. What's the second commandment? No carved images or, you know, don't make images of any created thing and worship those. Because he's like, I'm God, and I know, you know you're going to be tempted to worship the creation rather than the creator. Don't do that. Third command, don't take the Lord's name in vain. In other words, I'm God, even my name is holy. And you can't separate my name from my person. So don't treat my name flippantly. Don't treat my name falsely. Fourth command, keep this, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Why? Because I'm God, and I own everything including time. But 
He's saying, y'all are going to forget that. And so you're going to need a regular reminder. So you're going to have to take one day a week to remind yourself that I'm God and that I own everything. Notice how this passage is bookended with the idea that the Sabbath is holy. Look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then on the other end of the passage, at the end of verse 11, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, when something is holy, it means it's set apart. We set it apart. So let me give you an example. Does May 21st mean anything to you? Probably not. It's just a day. Uh, May 21st means something really important to me. It's a day that is set apart for me. May 21st is my anniversary. Uh, On May 21st, 1994, I married Amy Renee Thompson, right? And so I set apart that day once a year to remember that. There's nothing really special about that day in and of itself. What sets that part of day to me is that it commemorates a deep, abiding love relationship of which I'm a part of. May 21st reminds me that I don't exist unto myself. It reminds me that I don't just belong to myself. It reminds me that I'm in union with another. What the Sabbath does, uh, and the reason we set it apart as holy, and what God is saying here is that we set it apart as holy to remind God's people that they don't exist unto themselves. They're not just journeying through time, making up their own story as they go. Sabbath was to remind Israel and us that time is a precious gift of God. Time doesn't originate with us. We don't control it. Time doesn't end with us. Time belongs to God, and we're merely stewards of it or managers of it. Now, when we say the Sabbath is holy, we don't mean, well, the Sabbath belongs to God and the other six days of the week belong to me. Uh, What we mean is uh, all of the six days, all of the seven days belong to God, but the Sabbath is one day a week that reminds us that he owns all the other days, right? Like, I don't just belong to Amy on May 21st. I belong to her all of the days, but I set aside one day to remind myself I belong to her every day. And that's, that's kind of how the Sabbath works. Now, I want to say something about observing the Sabbath, If you are going to observe the Sabbath, it's not just taking a day off in our cultural understanding of day off, right? This is what Eugene Peterson says. Eugene Peterson writes, a day off is a bastard Sabbath, right? (laughs) And I'm like, what? When someone says something provocative about like that, they kind of want you to think, what, what does he mean by that? This is what I think Peterson means. I think he means that just taking a day off is not a substitute for a Sabbath. Just taking a day off uh, is an illegitimate Sabbath. It's a Sabbath without the Father at the center of it. So if I just take a day off to focus on me, to rest, refresh, um, run some of my errands, do some of my tasks, uh, that's a good thing. I should take days off. I should probably take a day off a week and do stuff like that. But that is not the Sabbath, because just a day off like that can, can, can kind of become sort of a pragmatic tool to rejuvenate us for the, the other six days of the week. And the Sabbath is distinctly not pragmatic or practical. The purpose of the Sabbath is not to serve our productivity in the other six days of the week. The Sabbath is Godward. It's God-focused. 
the one whom we, to whom we belong and whom we are union, in union with is at the center of the Sabbath. And so let me ask this question. Why is the Sabbath so necessary in helping us learn to steward our time? Well, I think it's because our bodies and our souls have to be recalibrated. They have to be retuned to the rhythms of grace, the rhythms of God's design for us. Grace, then works. Grace, then works. Receive from God, then respond in faith. And if we're not recalibrated, then we just end up getting sucked, sucked into this vortex of self-importance as if the, you know, the success of the week depends on our work, our productivity. We get sucked into this whirlwind of busyness, which is others' demands on us and demands we put on ourselves, And it just runs our life. I think that only a deliberate interruption, like an on-purpose interruption of our non-stop lives with God at the center of the interruption, only that can recalibrate our lives. That's what the Sabbath does. It's how we're made, actually, and, and it's how we function. I mean, all of you can probably think of little examples of how a deliberate stopping what you're doing, maybe a deliberate stepping out of the noise and the fray and just being still and quiet for a moment helps you kind of clear your head Helps you maybe even hear from God. You know, I don't know how many times I've been working on something and I just, I hit a barrier, I hit a wall. I, I'm a, it's a block. I'm just sitting there staring at my computer screen and I don't know where to go. Uh, and I'll just shut it down. And on the way home, I'll just go for a run at Town Lake. And, and I get out there and I start running and all of a sudden all these ideas start flooding into my head. And I'm like, where is this coming from, man? And I'm talking to myself as I'm running. And I get back to the car and I'm like, I got to write this stuff down. Where did that come from? I'll be trying to figure out a sermon outline, and I'll just, man, I'll just be in a block, and all of a sudden it will come to me when I'm not trying for it to come to me, just in random places, like in the shower, you know? And so I'll have moments where, like, even recently, where I'm, like, washing my hair, and it just, the outline comes to me, and I'm, like, preaching this entire sermon as I wash my hair. And I get out of the shower, and Amy's in the other room, and she's like, yeah, it was pretty good. And I'm like, well, it came to me, so I had to, I had to say it out loud. This is what the Sabbath does on a larger scale. It is a weekly interruption that allows us to step away, to be still, to seek God, and to hear from Him, and to gain perspective from Him about life. And so Sabbath is Godward in its focus, okay? It's a day off, but it's Godward in its focus. Now, how do we do it? What do we do on the Sabbath? Okay, for those of you who need something practical... This is it. I'm going to give you something practical. What to do on the Sabbath. I'm going to give you two words that Eugene Peterson gives. These are good words. These are good descriptors of activities on the Sabbath. Pray and play. Pray and play. Everything that we would do on the Sabbath would fit under those categories. Pray and play. Sabbath just means that we take 24 hours, sometime during the week, to put our doing down. To stop our work. Right? To cease striving, to pause any kind of productivity we have going on in our lives. And this applies to you no matter what you're calling in life. This is not just for those who go off to a job every day. This is for students. If you're a college student, grad student, high school student, middle school student. If you're retired, if you're a full-time mom. No matter what you're calling, 24 hours during the week, stop what you're doing. Turn uh, your doing off. Put your doing down. Now, it may mean that you have to turn off your cell phone or stop checking email for 24 hours. 
which that sounds like death to some of you, to be unplugged for that long, which probably means you need to do that, right? For those of you that are hyper-scheduled, maybe don't wear a watch during those 24 hours, so you're not always, like, checking what time it is. Um, 24 hours straight, not just, like, scattered throughout the week. You put your doing down. And uh, when you decide on that time, guard that time. Protect that time. Don't let your need for efficiency or productivity or functionality uh, creep in. Okay? Now, by the way, uh, observing the Sabbath is not a law. Right? You don't have to do this. There's no righteousness in it. You're not more righteous and holy if you observe the Sabbath. All of our righteousness comes from Christ. It's not a law, but it's an incredible gift. Uh, it's an incredible means given to us and practice given to us from God to help us understand that he owns time and that we get to steward it and also gives rest to our souls. Sabbath has a way, and nothing else I think is like it, it has a way of forcing us to learn to be fully present in the moment. Right? Fully present, not for the purpose of task or productivity, but fully present for the purpose of relationship with God and, and with other people. And I love what a friend of mine, uh, Ken Cockrum, says about the Sabbath. He says, the Sabbath is not a day off, it's a day with. So it's a day with the Lord, a day with people who give you life. Pray and play. Okay, These are two words. Let me talk about pray for a second. Pray just means that we focus uh, during that day on the Creator. Uh, We give our attention to God. So this might involve stillness and silence. It might involve reading your Bible. It might involve taking a walk with God. But focus your attention on God during that day. Worship, sing, pray, hear from God, be with the people of God. This is why Sunday is a good day for Sabbath. Again, it's not a law that we would keep the Sabbath on the Sunday, but traditionally Christians have kept it on, the, on Sunday because it's when Christians gather for worship. And so it's a great time to Sabbath because you can come together to worship God with God's people in a way that's already prearranged and preset. Focus your attention on God. Pray. This is not merely uh, passive, actually. We participate in it. We, we are fully present when we're seeking God. And as we do, we begin to see him as our highest good, our, 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 our most beautiful, uh, life-giving uh, thing in our life as we seek him. Let's talk about play for a second. So if pray means focus on the creator, uh, then play just means enjoy the creation but always with the creator in mind. Because we don't worship the creation, we worship the creator, but we enjoy his creation. And so when you think about play, I would say the sky is the limit here. I think it just means do what you enjoy uh, with people that you enjoy. So enjoy beauty in some way. You know, go for a hike on the green belt and see what God has made. Uh, Go canoeing on Town Lake. Go for a run. Play a sport. Listen to music. Play music if you're able to. Uh, you know, um, just give yourself to the things you love. Photography, painting. Enjoy a meal in a leisurely way where you linger at the table and talk and you're not in a hurry to get up and get on with the next task at hand. That's what play means. Again, this is not passive. We participate in this. We are fully present in these moments. This is what Eugene Peterson says about his practice of Sabbath with his wife each week. He says, We don't have any rules for preserving the sanctity of the day, only the commitment that it be set apart for being, not using. 
Not a day to get anything done, but a day to watch and be responsive to what God has done. It's great. Um, I think we would all agree that as Americans, we are busy, restless people. Most of us are, are searching for this elusive thing called balance in our life. If somebody would just give me a formula for balance, if someone would just give me a formula for time management, just tell me how to plug in all the various parts of my life and how much time to spend in them, and then so I can live correctly, and the formula will help me do that, and that's what we're looking for, because we like formulas uh, more than we like living by faith, don't we? And yet God calls us to live by faith, to walk with him and trust, and to actually take a Sabbath day is an act of faith. For us as Americans, to rest is an act of faith, because to rest, we are entrusting ourselves to someone else and saying someone else besides us is going to provide for us. And take care of us. And the practice of the Sabbath actually points us in faith to the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, who is Jesus. Listen to Mark chapter 2. Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what he's telling us is that the Sabbath is, is, is a gift from God. It's not a burden from God. It's a gift from God. And then he says, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning I am the master of rest. Like, Why would we go to anyone else to find rest than to Jesus? Because it's only in Jesus that we can find rest for our souls. It's only through Jesus that we can cease our striving for identity, for security, for provision, for life. We cease striving. In Jesus, and we understand who God is in Christ. This is really cool. Genesis chapter 2, listen to this. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He finished it, and he rested. God's work of creating was done, it was completed, and he rested. Now, that was creation. We also read something very similar about redemption or salvation. Just before Jesus died on the cross, he said this. He said, it's, it is finished. It's, in other words, all he had come to do uh, to secure our salvation, our redemption, was completed. It was done. And we can rest in that. that in fact, that is the beginning of our rest. So when we look to Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ resurrected, we can rest. We can rest in the boundless grace of God toward us, which is displayed uh, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. And as we rest in that, we begin to experience the God who is at work, even when we're not. Grace before work. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.